This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I encourage everybody when you go to court, uh, respect the decorum, wear a, wear a tie, you know, when in Rome, do as Romans do. Anybody that can put you in jail with a, a slap of a hammer. You so now it's, now it's constitutional rights. By fear, if you if you lick the boots or you kiss the ass, then you get your laws and you get your rules and you get the rights are followed. You guys got to remember that while you're out there driving around today. If you get pulled over by a cop, if you humble yourself and get down on your knees and yes sir or yes ma'am them to death and tell them you love them and they are God's next best people, that they'll probably not write you a ticket. Well, that well if that works. <laughs> Welcome to Project Seven. I'm Andy Viano and I'm Justin France. And this is episode three, The Radical Within. David, go, go ahead and call the joke. David, are, are, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're, you're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People were going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at the Missoula County deputies, and it's like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. Wouldn't be here doing this story, but I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you gotta do, okay? Hey, you do. Any, you, you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment, will never go away unless it's positive. The almost twenty-year-old security camera footage is grainy by today's standards. In it, you can see a long hallway with a strip of tape down the middle, one used to see if someone has had one too many to drink. And on the right side of the screen sits a bright blue desk with an old computer monitor on it. In front of that bright blue desk, two Kalispell police officers have David Berger restrained. His arms are behind his back. He's wearing military green cargo pants and a navy blue winter coat on top of a white U.S. Marine sweatshirt. And there's also what looks like a bag over his head. Dave, you gotta kill him. Okay? I'm pretty settled, Frank. Okay. I just can't breathe at all. 
He has been sprayed, however, he's spinning all over. I, so. can't, I cannot breathe and I cannot get sick to my stomach. Uh, my face is on fire. And I cannot breathe. Well, you sound like you're breathing to me, Dave. You're breathing the pepper spray, Frank. It's November 27, 2001, and a few minutes earlier, David Burgert was arrested in downtown Kalispell, Montana, just a few blocks away from where we are now, the Kalispell Police Department. Earlier that night, the Kalispell Police had gotten a report from a couple saying they were being followed. Police found the suspicious vehicle and pulled it over. As they were trying to figure out why the men had been following the other car, David pulled up. An officer asked David to leave. He didn't, and he got pepper sprayed and put in cuffs. Now he's here at the Kalispell Police Department, flailing around, shaking his head, and arguing with Police Chief Frank Garner. Okay, Dave, what? We take. Settle down. Or you're going to end up going to the ground. Take this fucking hood up over my mouth anyway. No, settle down. When you settle down, then we'll get to it, okay? Sit down, David. Sit down. When David arrived at the police station, he was spitting at the officers, so they put what was called a spit hood over yeah. his head. Okay. Yeah. Okay, it's up over my mouth, that's all. Well, you can't. The reason that it's over your mouth is so that you don't spit. I didn't spit on them. I spit right there on the floor. Well, I see spit all over the counter, too, so. It's running out of my nose and my mouth. I got no control over it. David would tell people later that he thought he was going to die. It starts to hit me in about 30 seconds, and then I start to lose my respirations. My, vision, my eyes close immediately. Uh, involuntary regurgitations start hitting. Nothing's coming up. Um, I'm handcuffed, and they're starting to walk me to the car, which I can't see. And... Uh, probably 10 steps into the end of the movement I collapsed to my knees because I can't breathe vomit anything it is the worst torture I've ever felt in my life and I mean that I've never felt anything even close to it but while David interpreted the experience as torture the officers said it was a normal procedure we, we still use them they're a specifically designed mask that is designed to go so it's kind of a clear mesh net that goes above your face so you can see to help with that and then below there is kind of something to prevent you from spitting everywhere in 2001 doug overman was a cop just months out of the police academy today he's Calspell's police chief it's something that we use frequently it's a, a marketed thing that is specifically designed for that that role and yeah so um, law enforcement nationwide uses it and and you know occasionally get people that are trying to assault us with bodily fluids, and uh, that spit hood, what they call it, would be, yeah, it would be utilized. This is Police Sergeant Rick Parker, the lead officer on duty that night in 2001. You know, it's, it's a hood. It's a, it's a mesh thing. And, and you know, yeah, you, you try and decon the guy, and, and you give him, you know, we, I think we would use, there's a garbage can there, you know, and, and if you got to spit, you know, spit in the garbage can. But don't spit just everywhere in general, and that it, and I... I didn't put it on him, I don't think. I think that was the, the patrol guys. I think he already had it on probably when I got back to the station, if I remember right. But um, but that was that was a standard practice in those kinds of things because bloodborne pathogens and all that, that, that was really a thing that was coming out in those days with, with AIDS and, and any of the other things you can catch, hepatitis or whatever. 
And so, you know, you, nobody wants to get spit on. And that was, you know, how else do you deal with that? Was a, that was a very non-aggressive, you know, it doesn't hurt you kind of thing. You know, you just put the mask on. If you spit, it's contained in the mask. And you can, I mean, the way that that mask works, like you can breathe. It's oh, yeah. Like, it's like mesh? It's a mesh. It's, it's, like a, it's like a nylon or similar mesh thing. I'm trying to think of the other uses for it. You know, you see it, you know. I see it like at weddings where they put bird seed in it. You know, it's 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 completely yeah. You could you know, I wear something similar when I'm bow hunting. Actually, you know, yeah. you, you wear a mesh mask to hide the contours of your face, but you can breathe through it. It's it's no problem at all. Then Kalispell Police Chief Frank Garner, who now serves the Kalispell area as a state representative, defended the actions of his officers that night, and he won a victory in that regard in court later on. In 2006, David accused Garner, the Kalispell Police Department, Rick Parker, and more than a dozen other officials and agencies of violating his civil rights on that night in 2001. A jury later ruled against Burgard. Here is Frank Garner. That was a, an event that took on a life of its own for a while, too. So. How do you mm-hmm. think your officers handled that? Yeah, I mean, I think the best they could under the circumstances, right? I mean, uh, considering who they were dealing in the quickly evolving events. The video from inside the police station is 44 minutes long. And beside being an obvious discomfort, David Berger is also righteously angry. He tosses out casual threats, challenging one officer to meet him outside and implies more than once that those who had wronged him this night would come to regret it. Like, you're not threatening police officers. No, I'm not, I'm not threatening you at all. I'm telling you that I'm going to protect myself and my family and my friends. Okay. Like you've never seen protection taken care of. Why don't you make sure you document that in the court? That's correct. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to repeat it again. No, Dave, now listen to me. I'll be glad to repeat it again. Keep, keep I right will go to any length no. to protect my life and my family. If you have a felony charge right now, I guess you're going to you're not a I'm going to go see the judge tomorrow and tell him to revoke your bond. Friend, you do anything you got to do, okay? Okay. You do anything. You you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment will never go away unless it's positive. Well, (laughs) that's that's more up to you than it is up to me. Yeah, I'm the one that's just been assaulted. I just had a crime crime committed against me, and you're standing here threatening me with a keep me locked up? Lock me up as long as it takes. That's what the, I'm the, you. Door, the door will open one day. David Burgert had made plenty of reckless comments and had no shortage of run-ins with the law over the years, even doing a stint in prison back in Alabama. But the night of November 27, 2001 was different from all the others. It was less than a year since he fought with cops in front of his house and less than a week after he was denied a chance to search for a young snowmobiler who later died in the woods. To some who knew David, like his young friend Jason Larson, this was the last straw. The November incident's what really pushed him over the edge. That night, Dave never resisted. Dave never put his hands on anybody. He actually just stood there, and they said that that he was impeding an investigation. 
I know he was mumbling stuff on his breath and, and kind of provoking, but a cop's supposed to be above that. I should be able to say anything under the wind to you. You gotta, you gotta let that roll off your back. Dave really went off the deep end. Like, these people are out to hurt me. They're out to torture me. They're violating the Constitution. They put a bag over my head. They hosed me down in a shower. This is torture. Like, so that's where Dave decided the gloves are off. Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive. But for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot. Like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editors Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up. The inland northwest, from the hills of eastern Washington to the Idaho Panhandle and to the mountains of western Montana, have long been a bastion for conservative politics, some more conservative than others. In late 2019, Washington State Representative Matt Shea, a Republican from Spokane, Washington, about four hours west of the Flathead Valley, was the subject of a number of media stories after he distributed a four-page manifesto titled The Biblical Basis for War that legitimized the murder of non-Christians. This report determined that Spokane Republican Representative Matt Shea, quote, participated in an act of domestic terrorism when he planned, engaged in, and promoted three armed conflicts outside the state of Washington between 2014 and 2016. The stories revealed that Shea was a member of the Patriot Movement, a far-right anti-government organization that has been flagged by the Southern Poverty Law Center, as one of more than 500 extremist groups currently operating within the United States. A report by his colleagues in the Washington State House of Representatives also revealed that he had close ties to the Bundy family, who have had numerous armed encounters with federal law enforcement officers in recent years, including in 2016, when Eamon Bundy led a 41-day occupation of a wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon. When the legislative report came out, the Spokane County Sheriff said he believed there was enough evidence to charge Shea with treason. At the time of this recording, Shea remains in office. Shea is comparing the report to President Trump's impeachment, calling it a sham, saying in part, I will not back down. I will not give in. I will not resign. Stand strong, fellow patriots. But Shea is not alone in his extremist views, especially in this part of the country. In 1978, Aryan Nations established its notorious compound in northern Idaho and in the decades that have followed, stories have emerged about numerous anti-government groups and militias in this area. These groups do differ to some degree. Those like Aryan nations were driven by white supremacy 
while others focused on gun rights or excessive taxation. But all of them were firmly opposed to big government and feared that the feds would take away their liberty or even their life. And by the early 1990s, members of the militia movement had some examples to point to. In 1992, federal agents attempted to arrest Randy Weaver at his home in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, near the Aryan Nations compound. And when Weaver refused to be taken into custody, a long, violent conflict ensued. Eleven days later, the standoff ended with one U.S. Marshal, Weaver's wife, and the couple's 14-year-old son all dead. The standoff attracted dozens of militia members who protested the government's actions in real time, and Weaver was eventually convicted only of bail jumping. Just six months later, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives attempted to raid a religious compound in Waco, Texas, that was stockpiling weapons, sparking a 51-day standoff. Those in the militia movement saw the government's actions as a violation of the sect's religious freedom and the standoff's controversial ending, an enormous fire of disputed origin that killed 76 people, was viewed by some as an act of war. Among those tasked with dealing with such groups are people like FBI Special Agent Steve Liss. You probably would have to reflect back to the militia movement and how it evolved starting at Ruby Ridge and the incidents that happened at Ruby Ridge, moving on to Waco and their ideology of the government having too much control and being intrusive into people's lives and some individuals probably going a little to the extreme and wanting to take measures to what they view as protecting themselves and protecting the Constitution against an intrusive government stepping into people's personal lives and, and their rights. Outside of law enforcement, groups like the Montana Human Rights Network also followed the rise of extremism in the inland Northwest very closely. My name is Travis McAdam, and I'm the research director at the Montana Human Rights Network. And I've been doing this work for oh, somewhere between like 15 and 18 years. So really, one of the things that makes the Montana Human Rights Network a little bit unique is that we were really started as a fight the radical right group. Um, and so the first probably two or three years of our existence, so that was back in like 1990 through 93, really all we did was work on helping communities understand and respond to really hardcore right-wing activists and groups. So Militia members, freemen, white supremacists, white nationalists, that, that type of work. Northwest Montana is intimately familiar with many of those types of groups. In the 1980s, an offshoot of Aryan nations calling itself the Order encamped some members in Kalispell and the surrounding communities while embarking on a violent spree of armored car robberies and the assassination of a Jewish radio host. Years after David Bergert and Project 7, a neo-Nazi named Karl Garst screened Holocaust denial films at a Kalispell library. And in just the last three years, the neighboring city of Whitefish, the part-time home of white supremacist Richard Spencer, was besieged by a so-called troll storm against a Jewish real estate agent. Back in 1994, when David Burgett was living in the Flathead Valley, John Trockman organized the Militia of Montana in the tiny town of Knoxon, about two hours west of Kalispell. Trockman held rallies in Kalispell to fire up supporters, preaching about government overreach, 
in threats to the Second Amendment. The militia Montana, when you think back to the 1990s and, you know, the militia movement was basically created. And I think one of the pieces that a lot of folks don't realize is the, I guess, the, you know, the four or five people that you could consider founders of the movement really came out of the hardcore white supremacist movement. And the militia movement was really an attempt to take some of those ideas and package them in a way that might get more mainstream support. So John Trockman had a similar background. He had spent time uh, over at Aryan Nations in northern Idaho, but he and his brother and his brother's kids started the Militia Montana out of Knoxon, Montana back in the early 90s. And it was really one of the first established militia groups in the country. One of the most surreal moments of the modern militia movement took place in Washington, D.C. on June 15, 1995, less than two months after the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh, a man who himself had strong militia ties. That day in June 1995, leaders of the nation's foremost militias sat in front of a U.S. Senate subcommittee. Now a hearing on militias in the United States. A Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Terrorism heard testimony Thursday from congressional lawmakers, federal law enforcement officials, and state and local administrators. we now like to call the uh, next panel uh, uh, Mr. John Trockman, uh, Mr. Robert Fletcher, Mr. Ken Adams, Mr. James Johnson, and Mr. Norman Olson. Trockman, who looks the part of a mountain man with a balding head, bushy white beard, and thick curling mustache, is dressed in a gray suit and tie. At the present time, we view the militia movement as a giant neighborhood watch. The movement is made up of a cross-section of Americans from all walks of life with a singular mandate which is public and overt. The return to the Constitution of the United States and to your oath to defend that Constitution. As he continues, Trockman begins outlining the reasons he believes his movement is growing punctuating his argument by directly referencing the violent confrontations between citizens and federal law enforcement in Waco, Texas, and Ruby Ridge, Idaho. When the average citizen must work for half of each year just to pay their taxes, while billions of our tax dollars are forcibly sent to bail out the banking elite, while our fellow Americans are homeless, starving, and without jobs, Congress wonders why the constituents get upset. When government allows our military to be ordered and controlled by foreigners, under presidential order, allowing foreign armies to train on our soil, allowing our military to label caring patriots as the enemy, then turns their tanks loose on U.S. citizens to murder and destroy, or directs a sniper to shoot a mother in the face while holding her infant in her arms, you bet your constituents get upset. Trockman would remain one of the public faces of the militia movement for years. The militia of Montana would also continue to publish giant catalogs selling mainly survivalist gear until the group petered out in the early 2000s, not long after their apocalyptic Y2K predictions proved incorrect. Still, it was through surveillance of the militia of Montana that the Montana Human Rights Network became aware of a potential new threat in the Flathead Valley. The first time I saw Dave Bergert's name was in an email that was distributed over the Militia Montana email list. And it was this call to have fellow patriots come to one of his court hearings to show, as he said, to show support, but obviously, you know, to intimidate <laughs> the, the the public servants that were working there that day. And then 
a follow-up message thanking people for showing up. Part of McAdams' job was listening to a radio show out of Kalispell, hosted by conservative shock jock John Stokes on KGEZ. He called his show The Edge. Is it racist if a black person orders Chinese food? Um, I don't know. Well, why is it racist if a white person talks about fried chicken? See, I don't understand where food is racist. That, I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. Well, now, maybe. now we have the liberals wrapping themselves in food. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't realize. It. I didn't realize that food was racist. I didn't either. Hmm. You learn something every day from the liberals down here. The content was what you would expect to hear on kind of a low watt pirate radio militia station, um, not an FCC, <laughs> you know, radio station with a license. People don't understand they can do anything they damn well please. Um, the Constitution does not restrict their freedoms. It restricts the government's limitations of power. Exactly. In the early 2000s, Stokes's radio show became a gathering place for those who opposed big government. At the time, Montana's timber industry was on the decline, and environmentalists, who he blamed for the industry's struggles, were Stokes's favorite target. I mean, it really did get to the point where he was using the station to really go after a special local, especially local conservationist activists that he called green Nazis. And they would be terrorizing people. They would be harassing people. They would be doing illegal things under the statutes and the laws. But they call themselves the Green Militia of Montana. Now, what would you do to keep the rest of us safe from these green wackos? And, you know, really use the edge as a platform to attack people that he perceived to be enemies in the community. And for a lot of the frequent callers, like the, the callers, saw that as a vehicle to go after people in the community that they didn't like. Another of Stokes's frequent targets was the mayor of Kalispell, Pam Carbonari, then Pam Kennedy. He called me names on his radio station, and he was uh, full of anger and hate. And so I didn't, I tried not to listen. But yes, every once in a while when I knew what the subject was going to be, or somebody else called and said, you better turn on the radio, you know, then I would listen. Other Stokes listeners heard those same words, and some, Carbonari believes, took action. It was, it was a time of awareness. Making sure that you um, took your, uh, that you were cautious, I guess, about what was going on around you. When we did the remodeling at the new city hall, I personally wanted to make sure that they put a panic button underneath the podium where I sat so that if somebody came in, that we would have the ability to hit that panic button and have the police there. And it was during that time also that, uh, I mean, I had three different at least three times, um, nails put behind my car. And so I drove over them and would end up with a flat tire. Carbonari wasn't the only one concerned about the rhetoric on the edge. Travis McAdam at the Montana Human Rights Network began to worry that the hateful words being spoken on the show were creating something genuinely dangerous. Because we were monitoring this radio station in 2001-ish, we became really concerned that some of the militia network structure that had been up in the valley back in the 1990s when the militia movement was a, a really, you know, was really at its heyday, that some of those structures were being tapped into and, and kind of built upon again. And we even sent a letter to like the county sheriff, the county attorney, the city police chief just saying... Hey, you know, we're, we're concerned um, that, that this is going on. 
you know, I, I feel like at that time, kind of 2000, 2001, we really felt like something's building up there and we couldn't necessarily, you know, put our finger on it and say, oh, it's it's Dave Bergert and it's these six people or, you know, the kind of a core group. But, you know, through monitoring the radio show, through monitoring the Militia Montana and the interaction, kind of the communication going back and forth, we definitely could feel like there there's something building there. Chuck Curry, then the Flathead County undersheriff, said he was aware of groups calling themselves militias in the county, but that from a law enforcement perspective, there is a distinction that has to be drawn between a group calling itself a militia and one that is actually a threat to the community. And we talked about that a little bit. So, I mean, there were groups, uh, militia groups that just wanted to help. I'm, I'm not trying to paint any sort of group like this in, in, a, in a necessarily bad light. Groups that follow the law, groups that uh, want to help, groups that go out and train with weapons, nothing wrong with that. I mean, that it's everybody's constitutional right and good on them. But when they take the step into possessing illegal weapons and uh, conspiring to commit homicides and criminal acts, uh, that's, of course, across the line. I think it's important to always remember in law enforcement that as long as people are are following the law, uh, they have a right to their beliefs and they have a right to to do whatever is appropriate to further those beliefs within the confines of the law. And uh, there are those out there that do that still. And it's perfectly fine to be a constitutionalist. It's not against the law. It's just uh, knowing where that line is. FBI Special Agent Steve Liss. You get 100 people in a room. If you want to have a cause, you get 100 people in a room and you apply the bell curve. You're going to have people at the front end of that cause that have extreme beliefs. They're going to be the tip of your spear. They're going to lead. You're going to have the middle people that are there. Whatever you say, I'll I'll listen to what you say. I'm going to follow. And then you're going to have people at the tail end who are going to be, I'm going to put my foot through the door and check this out to see if I really want to be a part of it. And in this country, people have the right to gather. They have constitutional rights. The government respects that. But bear in mind, you have 100 people. What we're looking for is the two people out of those 100 who are the ones who are willing to pick up a gun or detonate an explosive and take another person's life. That They want to be the extremists to further their cause. The other 98, have at it. That's why we live in a free country. That's why we live under the umbrella of, of freedom and privilege. You have the right to express. You have the right to bear your arms. You have the right to do that. You just have to keep it between the tracks. John Stokes continued to spread an anti-government message on the airwaves that riled up many of his listeners. As he did, a small group of them settled into the extreme end of FBI agent Steve Liss's bell curve. I think that Stokes really took a lot of these just wacky, crazy, and in some cases dangerous ideas and repeated them often enough that people in the Valley who were maybe kind of conservative leaning to begin with started to think, oh, well, these are, these are legitimate. These are legitimate ideas. These are, you know, legitimate things to think. And so I think he did have that effect of normalizing a lot of these militia ideas, militia rhetoric. As far as like radicalizing people to the extent that somebody like Dave Berger was radicalized, I don't know that he got anybody there, but the one thing that he did do is he allowed them access to his radio program to talk and spread these ideas um, quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, Berger called in all the time. 
John Stokes. How are you? Hello. Let's get it from the horse's mouth. Dude, you recognize my voice. The disguise don't work. <laughs> the only thing I could think of was how many people have been executed for this thing, how many people are spending life in prison because they don't uh, respect an individual who won't obey the Constitution. Or won't respect, wait a minute. Respect's a two-way street, though, too. Respect is earned, John. It's not demanded. Well, I mean, it's, it's a two-way street. If somebody comes into your business and starts throwing stuff around and talking trash to you... Private uh, sector. Uh, well, but you... Respect is two-way street. Private uh, sector. You're still a human being. Um, but I'm not required. There's no law whatsoever on the books require me to stand up for an individual when they walk in the courtroom when they are a traitor. Well, there's no law that says a government uh, employee or elected official has to like you or respect you either. Yes, there is. No, there are your rights, but not you personally. Yes, Section 5 of the Montana State Constitution says is Says the government clear. employees have to love you? No, I didn't say love. Or like you? No, Section 5 says everybody will be treated exactly the same. Right. I mean, there, there's there's times you, you stand and shout at the government and, 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 and stand on the corner and give them the, the one-finger salute, and there's other times you don't. I mean, you got to pick and choose your battles. All right. Thank hey, you so have much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. As he was calling in to talk to Stokes in the early 2000s, David was already quietly helping lead his own underground militia. The AA group that had been meeting throughout the late 1990s adopted a new name, Project 7. Authorities would later use the testimony of at least one informant to accuse members of planning mass assassinations of local officials and a violent overthrow of the government. They also were collecting a massive arsenal of weapons. According to most people we interviewed for this story, the group got its name from Flathead County's license plate, which always starts with a 7. Some, however, said it was because the group started with 7 members. People within the group, like Jason Larson, didn't shy away from the militia label, but they never saw themselves as dangerous to the community. Larson moved to Kalispell from California as a child and joined Project 7 when he was just a teenager. Even at that age, he believed strongly in the militia ideals and was a true believer in Project 7's early mission. Project 7 was a disaster awareness and a patriotic group, you know, defend life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the Constitution, defend our state against all things foreign domestic. That's, that is the mission statement of Project 7. So very, that's what it was, is to be a part of the community, to be a, obviously a pro-Second Amendment um, we met in Dave's garage. Um, we did do training. We did live fire exercises. We did training with explosives. We did training with improvised explosives. We did training with one of the group members got some old uh, practice mines for the U.S. military. We practiced with those. We practiced training, finding tripwires. But others saw something very different in David Bergen and Project 7 triggered in part by the way they interacted with other militias around the country. David did have contacts with other militia leaders down in Texas and, and down in Michigan, and some of those alleged contacts would, would uh, have bearing on what we would do, like find out later on in the investigation and, and how we would proceed. The overall worldview and what they were planning, which was they were hoping to basically incite the federal government, you know, coming in and the National Guard coming in um, and kind of kicking off this, you know, civil war. That's very just 
part and parcel to being a militia member in the 1990s into the early 2000s. And frankly, even today, you know, is this belief that at some point in the imminent future, and the imminent future now is going on, what, 30 years, but, you know, in the imminent future, the United Nations, basically on behalf of or with the support of the federal government, is going to declare martial law and declare war on good law-abiding, God-fearing citizens, you know, the militia members. In Larson's explanation of Project 7, those ideas were not at the forefront. Like Liss's bell curve of extremism and the idea that a couple bad apples could spoil a group of 100, Larson said the dozen or so people who were part of Project 7 in the beginning, including David, were not involved because they thought their government was out to get them. I injured my back, and I had been in ROTC, and I was gonna go, I wanted to go in the Marine Corps. That was like my deal, but I hurt my back, and I wasn't going to be able to go in the Marine Corps. So I saw this as a, a route to service. You get get invited to meetings. It's not like you get jumped in or something like a gang. It's not, not like that. No, 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 no candles, no blindfolds. I got officially invited to a meeting, and then I stood up in front of the group and spoke to the group, you know, told them what I believed the militia was and what. And then they took a vote to decide whether I was going to be allowed in the group or not. In August of 2001, Project 7 took a field trip. At the time, Southern Oregon was experiencing a record-breaking drought, and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that oversees water management in parts of the West, had reduced water access to local farmers and ranchers in order to save two species of fish protected by the Endangered Species Act. Farmers in the area declared it a crisis and said the federal government was prioritizing fish over their livelihoods. Hearing this, John Stokes helped organize what he called the Convoy of Tears from Kalispell to Klamath Falls, Oregon, and people like David Burgert, with an axe to grind against the federal government, began to make the pilgrimage. Burgert's convoy included an old wood chip truck they called the Grim Reaper that was graffitied with the name of every lumber mill in Montana that had closed since 1973, the same year the Endangered Species Act went into effect. The convoy arrived in Klamath Falls and joined a protest that included militia types from all over the country. Burgert spoke to a reporter for the local newspaper, telling the reporter that most of the people who had come to Oregon had done so to speak out against the federal government, even if it came at a personal cost. In a story published in late August 2001, Burgert said, quote, I know most of these people and they are barely squeaking by. For them to take what they have and travel to Klamath, speaks to how important they think this is. Dale, it is the lifeblood of fish, it is the lifeblood of farmers, and tonight, both have their water. Folks here along the California-Oregon border are thankful that their government finally listened, but they wonder why it took months of protests and violence. Americans in a small corner of the country who waged a war over water. It's just a great victory for the uh, people to uh, fight, actually fight the government and, and, and do win. While their protest might have seemed innocent or even righteous to an outsider, groups who monitor American militias were concerned about what they were seeing. The level of vitriol coming from protesters in Klamath Falls harkened back to the 1990s, and the Southern Poverty Law Center reported that many in the anti-government patriot movement saw Klamath Falls as the potential next Waco or Ruby Ridge, and they were preparing for a fight. 
a fight David and others thought was going to come to Montana. You know, virtually everybody that we talked to up here, Dale, told us that they think what happened here is eventually going to happen throughout the entire West, where water is scarce and the demands are higher than ever. Shortly after he returned from Klamath Falls, David called into John Stokes's radio show to ask Larry Chesham, a local militia member and candidate for sheriff, what he would do to protect local residents from federal overreach. Okay, well, how would you, how would you handle a Klamath Falls water issue if it were to, when it does happen in our area? And it will happen. Um, Klamath Falls is just the last of uh, the latest of a series of moves that have been going on by the federal government for a long time. They've been picking off farmers onesies, twosies here and there. At the beginning of the year, because they had been emboldened by those successes, they decided to pick on the Amish in Ohio. They were successful there, and gee, what a coincidence. The next place was Klamath Falls, where they were taking on 1,400 family farms and 20 to 30,000 people affected by their actions. Very true. My phone number is and I would like to support you any possible way that you need help or whatever it takes to get you the opportunity to do what you say you're going to do because uh, 20 years of this garbage going on is, is only getting worse of them continuing to try to put deputies in there that are already brainwashed and uh, this is a, an average person's job that's why it's an elected job exactly. not an appointed job and you You've already convinced me instantly when I first heard you speak. And, um, Briefly. The militia people don't have opinions. They, uh, they stand up for whoever. In the 10 months between when Bob Sesnick brought the cops to David Bergert's front door and the night David Bergert was pepper sprayed in downtown Kalispell in November 2001. Project 7 was changing, sometimes in a way unbeknownst to all of its members. David Bergert was becoming less interested in anti-government rhetoric and more inspired to act. As John Stokes pointed to the government as the enemy, David nodded along, reminded of his jailing in Alabama his denial on the search and rescue team in Flathead County. And he heard from Stokes some of the same things he was hearing from other militia leaders around the country he communicated with. And that same year, in 2001, just weeks after getting back from Klamath Falls, everyone's world changed forever, including David Bergert's. Next time on Project 7. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're on the building. Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly. They need to rally. They need to rally to the points they've been assigned and secure the areas that they have been assigned to secure. This isn't just a handful of people that get together in the, for coffee in the morning and, and talk about how much they hate the government. They actually had plans or at least had a list of people in local and state government that they wanted to assassinate. Who was on that list? Well, I was on the list. What, what do you need to have automatic weapons and explosives for? What do you need to be following cops and their families around? gathering intelligence on those people, then common sense is going to tell you that's a concern. Our police department does not have the capability to handle this. Right. I think the only one that was holding it together mentally was me, and obviously that shows in the decision I made. Sat down, leaned against a tree, and put the long gun he was carrying uh, under his chin and 
we had a standoff at that point. I remember laying there and being so tired that I, I think I fell asleep laying there, but man, honestly, it was like, oh, geez, just do something. Yeah. Just shoot yourself and let's get it over with. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by Justin Franz and me, Andy Viana. The editor-in-chief of the Flathead Beacon is Kellen Brown, and our managing editor is Myers Reese. Music in this episode is composed by Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Auman, and Jeremy Reinbolt. Marco Forcone is the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod and used via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, and the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon. And a reminder that this and every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. To learn more, visit rbamontana.com. That's rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local, independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Project7Pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Berger or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send an email to project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening. Project 7.